Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 207. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jujitsu approach. And today I am pleased to be joined by one of my oldest jujitsu buddies, Mr. Kabir Bath. Kabir, how's it going, man? Going great. I'm super excited to be on here. I know it's been a long time coming, but yeah, thanks so much for having me on the show, Steve. Most welcome. I am glad to have you here. Those who have been listening to the podcast for a while have probably heard me talk about how one of my favorite teachers ever was a blue slash purple belt who I thought was better than most of the black belts in the room. That was Kabir. That's who we're talking about. But Kabir is not a blue purple belt anymore. He's a black belt under Rafael Lovato Jr. That said, though, Kabir, why don't I turn this around to you and maybe you can introduce yourself in more detail. Yeah, so I'm a first-degree black belt under Lovato Jr. I sort of am the head of the Lovato Association, right-hand man type thing there. And then I run, or rather own, Kaboom Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu just outside of Vancouver, Canada in Surrey. And for the last 10 years, we've really specialized on youth programming. You know, that's been our core crux of our business. And hopefully that's where I can share some good insights so everyone else can sort of, you know, learn how to really build a program that delivers on what the kids need, the parents need, everything like that. And what your business needs. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that a lot of what you need to build a good kids program, a lot of it is honestly probably just good business advice in general. But the way that you specifically have thought about your kids program, I I think is fantastic. I saw that video of you giving a kind of a lecture in front of the Lovato Association and just talking about how you scaled up your kids program. But maybe as a quick intro, just why don't you talk about it, what you do at Kaboom and why your program is so kids focused? Yeah. So really at the heart of it, I'll start with sort of why we started with kids is really the main thing has always been like when I was a white belt, I had someone tell me that you couldn't make a career off jujitsu. So goal number one, make a career for myself, but also for other people. And I knew having a strong youth program was going to be a big part of that. It's something scalable. It's something where you can touch a lot of lives as well. So that was sort of, you know, the number one focus. And when it came to our kids program, you know, I didn't want it to just be sport. I didn't want it to just be, you know, not McDojo, but, you know, sort of that watered down idea. I really thought, man, why can't we just deliver on everything? Why can't it have the best coaching practices, you know, deliver all that life skill, character development stuff and have the kids do jujitsu every day that they're with us. And, you know, it's something we've been crafting over the last 10 years, you know, all so many different iterations over the years. And now we really have a solid formula that's has us now, like as of today, you know, I have 312 youth students and we, you know, start from four all the way up to 13. And now it's really interesting. You know, when I started my academy, I sort of made the choice to focus on kids exclusively at, you know, at the downside of adults. And, you know, there's a thing that I sort of made a decision. It's like, hey, I could have a lot of focus on adults and eventually have, you know, some 30, 40 year old black belts, or I could focus on this youth program. And in 10, 12, 15 years, I can have a big stable of, you know, 19, 20, 21 year old black belts and really build a jujitsu team that way. And it's, sort of coming to fruition you know now this year we're sort of having our first wave of those juvenile blue belts who've been training with me for you know eight nine ten years and we're only going to have more of that over the next couple years here so it's really exciting to sort of see the plan come together it was really a long-term vision from the get-go but i think it's something people that people can overlook because they just don't think you know, a kid's program is super sexy or they go about it as a necessary evil rather than something that could really make a meaningful impact in their lives, in their coaches' lives, and in their life as an owner too. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think you wisely bring up the benefit to coaches of targeting kids programs. I mean, first of all, man, I would say that for kids, jujitsu has got to be one of the the sports that I would recommend most universally. I really regret that I didn't discover jujitsu until well into my adult years because I would have loved to discover this sport when I was, you know, my daughter's age. I also totally understand why so many instructors don't want to do it because look, some people just, you know, they, they don't know how to deal with kids. And, and I think also people have a tendency to project their own desires onto their customers and they don't realize that, you know, look, Sometimes the best thing for you to do from a bottom line standpoint is help people, you know, get their kids trained. It's not always about, like you said, turning grownups into black belts. Sometimes it's about catching kids earlier on in their journey because there's so many things that kids can get out of a good martial arts practice beyond just the self-defense piece. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, to this day, I've yet to have a parent come in and be like, okay, so when is my child going to learn spider guard triangles? And I really want them to specialize in that never happens. You know, truthfully, if you were to take a step back and like, hey, what do these parents want? They want, you know, something that will build their child's confidence, maybe give them a new social network, put them in a positive, encouraging environment, you know, and it's like, oh, but what do kids want? Kids want fun. They want to be physical. They want to make new friends. They want to, you know, (laughs) they want to have fun, you know, but I think so often coaches like to think, hey, you know, this is my program. I'm going to run it the way I want. And then they have four kids and they're really confused about why kids class is a big drag. You know, you have to sort of, you know, lead with what your clients want and what they sort of need. Because truthfully, jiu-jitsu would be super cool if everyone had that. But all the other stuff is going to be utilized way more in their life than that triangle armbar, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's something I've very much said on the podcast. I got into jujitsu for the same reason most people do, which is I wanted to learn how to defend myself. But man, the older I get, the more I realize I am never going to use this sport for the thing it was intended for. I just, you know, I'm a 40 year old hobbyist father. There's just no situation where I'm likely going to have to wind up defending myself in a bar fight. But the things that have stuck with me over the years are the networking, learning how to learn, having a physical practice that I can use to stay fit and healthy, which is always a challenge when you don't do this stuff for a living, right? You got to find a way to work fitness into your schedule. And now as a dad, getting my girl into jujitsu, she absolutely loves it. And those are the things I think, like you said, that ultimately really matter in jujitsu. If you stay with it for a long time, the, the self-defense aspect and the competition aspect that only diminishes in importance, the longer you train. Yeah. Cause like we tell parents this when they come to the academy, it's like, Hey, you know, we're going to teach your kid double legs, going to teach them how to pin people down, escape, all that stuff. But I absolutely guarantee you, they will use a strong, confident voice, good body language and social skills way more in their life than a double leg. And the reward for them being able to use that will be way greater than them being able to blast double everyone they see. And, you know, when you really make it clear, like, oh, man, the utility of jujitsu is It's there, but it's more like just this vehicle that we can use for all this other growth. You know, that's what I I wish more people would see and understand is that like you can deliver it to a lot more people and really have a much deeper effect than if you just focus on making kids really good at the sport. And that's not to say, you know, our students aren't inclined to participate in the sport as it is. I mean, we had an in-house tournament with like 120 kids like two weeks ago. They love wrestling. They love going hard. You know, they love training. But we wanted to make sure that we structured everything so that we can really encapsulate and like nurture those more valuable traits, you know, the things that will pay off when they're 13, 14, 15, you know, rather than being maybe an awkward teen, they're a little bit more confident. They're a little bit more assured of themselves. And that puts them in a better position for the long run and really always been our goal is like, how can we make that long-term impact, you know? Absolutely. So what would you say your kid's class looks like versus how a standard kid's class would look like? I'm just curious to know, what do you think is incorrect with the way that most coaches teach and manage kids classes and how does Kaboom do it differently? Yeah. So just generalizing here, you know, most schools that run a kids program, it's really just an adult class for kids, you know, in that we follow that classic sort of three-part formula that sometimes you talk about, you know, there's some sort of warm-up, there's a technique, and then there's some sparring. 
which is great, but you have to know your audience. And that's sort of like a recurring thing is you have to know your audience and you have to care about what the best practice is for them. So for us, our big thing is our program is really a lot of games-based learning. And more and more, you know, you're seeing people understand and appreciate the value of like leading from this way. Because a couple things. One, we want to have the kids moving as much as we can. We want to have them, you know, participating in the activity. And it just makes the room a lot easier. So, for example, our average class, you know, we'll have the basic stuff. You know, we have a warm-up. You know, we have a couple big sections really dedicated to improving their skills, a game, a stretch warm And when you just look at, like, the outline, it looks really basic. Like, oh, everyone does that. But the real key is sort of how we try and structure those things with like an outcome in mind, you know, so our warm up is not just mindless different warm ups every single day to keep the kids like interested and engaged. When we think of our warm up, it's like, hey, we want part of this warm up to be super consistent so these kids can, you know, see their progress, build confidence in their physical skills. And, you know, part of it can be varied so that they can develop that overall physical literacy, you know, which is so important for youth. You know, if you want them to be great athletes when they're older, you actually have to develop their athletic foundation when they're young, you know, and then we'll move into, well, actually, one thing we do here is a life skills sort of match chat. So for us, you know, we know parents are coming for confidence, self-esteem, honesty, all those things, but we don't want to just hope that it happens by accident, you know, so we have a little part of every class where we talk about these things with these kids, we get them involved, we give them that space to share their ideas, to participate, to actually think and engage with these concepts rather than having just be something that they're told that they should do or they should have, you know, and then we move into the fun stuff, you know, and all of this, of course, is fun. But the way we approach teaching is I think, you know, it's just great for the kids because we want the kids to do all of jujitsu every day, but we want it to be fun as much as we can have them playing is way better than them listening to us lecture. Okay, because I don't need them to know the step by step of every move. I need them to know and like playing the game so that they want to learn the step by step. So for us, our average class, you know, we'll do some sort of game around the guard, you know, then we'll do a game around the turtle position, a game around standing, you know, and then a technique. So an example of that might be, you know, every day our kids might come in and they might play the grappler stance game. All that is, is two kids in a wrestling stance in front of each other. And every day we give them a different win objective to score a point. Maybe on Monday, they're scoring points by putting their partner's hands on the mat. Maybe Wednesday, they're scoring points by being able to get a body lock. You know, maybe next week it's by actually picking up one leg is how you score a point. And while we frame it as a game to the kids, they're working super essential skills here with a lot of touches, you know, they're getting a lot of repetition and they're able to do it pretty safe. And we can have, you know, 40 kids at once playing the grappler stance game. Why? Because they know the game, you know, the basic outline and every day they're just listening to hear what's different for the win today. We do the same thing with the turtle game. You know, a kid's in turtle, another kid is starting maybe at the back of the turtle, you know, top player. Okay. Today your goal is pin them chest to chest. So you got to turn over the turtle. Bottom player, stand up. Like there's so many variations of this, but all we try and do is make sure that the kids are playing the key phases of jiu-jitsu, which for us is standing, turtle scenarios, guard scenarios, and pin scenarios. So we like to think a lot of their learning is going to happen through them playing these games rather than me showing you step by step how to turn over a turtle and have you drill it with no, you know, with no fun, but also like no actual resistance or anything going on. We get to now just play and get so much more volume with these kids actually engaging in jiu-jitsu. And then for us as coaches, we don't have to manage behavior when they're playing. We just get to coach the kids while they're playing, which I think is truly what a lot of coaches would prefer to do rather than trying to keep kids focused, engaged while they lecture. And that's the, the meat of our class. And then, of course, we do other basic fun stuff, stretching, we'll do a game, and then we'll bow out. But it's that middle section that I think a lot of schools sort of miss out on because they try and follow that adult style of class where here's a move, you're going to drill it a bunch, and then we'll do some sparring. And that just doesn't work. And it sort of sucks, you know, to be honest. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, we've talked about this on the podcast. I'm not even sure that approach is great for adults, but for kids is even worse, right? Because you're dealing with young people with a very short attention span. Kids, of course, most of the time they're there because their parents put them there. They didn't opt in and pay for the experience like an adult would. So man, if you use that old school approach where you're basically just giving your students instructions and expecting them to follow, I can see how that could result in them losing their attention span, not enjoying it. And then that's when the kids class experience can kind of be that negative experience that some coaches complain about, where basically it's just a babysitting job and they feel like their function as the coach is basically to keep these kids under control and manageable. Whereas what you're talking about, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, sounds very similar to this ecological approach that we've had a lot of people talk about recently, where you're not so much giving people techniques, but you're creating games. And the idea is that from those games, the correct functions will eventually emerge. Is that correct? Yeah. So in the simplest way, right? A long time ago, we learned like I could show a kid how to break this person down and take the back step by step, or I could really clearly show the kid the starting shape that them and their partner make and what I want the end shape to look like. Kids are super smart. They will figure out all the chaos in the middle if you can give them a clear and definite start and a clear and definite win condition. And for us, man, that has been a game changer because all our kid needs to know is, you know, we start top turtle with a rear body lock and I'm going to finish with seatbelts and hooks. How are we going to do that, champions? Oh, you know, we might try and break them to a hip. We might try this or that or whatever. We can show them some examples, but we just tell them, you want to start here and finish there, make it happen however you need to make it happen. And that's engaging for kids because they don't get caught up thinking, am I doing this the right way? There is no right way. There's just one correct outcome, which is taking their back, you know, and man, it's really freeing for a coach because Kids get off task when they feel stuck or when they feel like they don't know what to do. So they're just going to not do it or not do the thing. In this form, it's very easy for every kid in the room to know what they're supposed to do. I'm supposed to take this turtle's back. So I end up with a seatbelt and both hooks in. That's it. Like when you can make coaching simpler for the children, it becomes way simpler for the coaches as well. Yeah. It's in a lot of ways, you're basically teaching people to play games versus teaching people to follow instructions, right? And that just seems like, especially with kids, a, a much greater way to keep them engaged and keep them interested. I mean, and one thing to consider here is, okay, you and I, we have fairly good language skills in that I can give you a verbal instruction and you can do it. But we've all been in an adult jujitsu class where our verbal skills aren't even good enough for other adults to understand what we mean for them to do. Now, just think you're dealing with children who verbal skills are much lower, but their visual skills and their ability to learn through modeling are way higher. So why don't I just set it up to cater to their strengths, right? So I'm not going to tell you how to take the back. I'm going to show you what it looks like and just tell you where you want to finish, you know, so we're not giving a lot of instruction because I know it's going to fall on deaf ears, essentially, but I'm going to really show you those big visuals, make sure you can engage with it in a way that works for you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So when you as the coach do a demo for the students, how do you do it? Because the, the classical way is, you know, you show a technique and you say, here's step one, here's step two, and you just keep going. And then eventually you tell people, okay, copy what I did. But with a kid, when it comes to putting a game in place, like, how do you go about doing that? How do you go about giving them those instructions in a way that, that makes it fun and engaging for them? Yeah. So one thing is this is all going to come down to delivery of the coach, right? What is your voice like, your tone, your speed, your pacing, all that? What is your body language like? What are the words you're using? Are there exciting phrases? That's one whole thing of this. But when it comes to how are we actually instructing this, right? I'm trying to see what's like the minimal amount of information the kid needs. And usually it's just the starting place. Where do I start? What are the grips? Where's my body? Where's there? Without too much complexity, you know? And then we just show them the move and you sort of narrate it, you know, like, oh, you know, I'm going to start here behind the champion and my goal is to put them on a hip so I can create some space to find my arms and legs around them. You know, like, you know, notice I'm not being super particular about where, 
with my words, but when we're doing the actions, I'm very deliberate. That seatbelt that I'm forming, it looks it looks like a cartoon, you know, of the way that we're throwing it in so that we catch the child's eye. The way we're putting in the hooks is like extra dramatic, right? Because we just want to make sure their eyes are following what they're doing and that the voice is just to sort of keep them engaged as well, just drawing the attention to that. So for a lot of these things, we just show it like that. Like, you know, we just, we're very loose with details in that coaching the whole group thing which allows us to then throw in little details when they're actually playing the game you know which is a much better way you know i always like to think the coach at the front of the room their only goal is to outline and set you up to play and then when you're actually playing the game that's when we can start filling in details you know start adding little things for you to focus on because it's a little bit simpler at that point but that's usually how we approach a lot of this. Now, in addition to the games, we do do some sort of like formal classical teaching of moves. But again, we don't really follow the old method of that. You know, we try and make it engaging throughout the whole process. I'll quickly just sort of share what that is. So let's say we're going to teach the kids Osotogai, you know, basic trip. Everyone knows it. When we do it, okay, we sort of have like a method where first we're going to show it, yo, this is our most like powerful takedown that we love to do from our judo grips. Boom, you know, we get them hype. But then we're going to like explain it, you know, like, okay, so we're going to get our grips on the collar and sleeve. We're going to step so we can pull them nice and close to us. We're going to do a big kick so we can come back and take out their leg. And we're going to finish all the way in the neon belly. So that first time I just sort of like, you know, talk them through the move, but I'm not really deliberate about anything. I'm just casting a big picture. And then we'll get the kids engaged. So what I want you champions to do is now we're just going to repeat one word for every step. So I say grips. Every kid gets to repeat grips back to me. I say step as I do that big dramatic step with a pull. I say kick as I do that big kick. And boom, I say neon belly as we complete the throw, finish a neon belly. Then we do it another time. So again, the kids are not sitting idle. They're participating with me, right? And then, you know, what we're going to do is before we send them off to drill, which we don't really ever do, we're going to do some sort of like step-by-step reps. Meaning there's a partner one, partner two. Partner one, grips. Every kid in the room gets grips at the same time and they freeze. Then we do step. Every kid steps. Kick, boom, neon belly. We follow the same thing. The reason we do this is one, again, we're making sure they're all engaged, right? No one is left idle in this format. They all have to follow along. They all get to follow along and we're sort of moving, you know, synchronized throughout. But for me as a coach, it makes it really easy for the team to see who doesn't know what's going on. Because if the whole room looks like they're doing the right move, that person who is off stands out really fast and you can really help them out quick. Right. So then we'll do that. So we do that. And it's, man, it's been one of the best methods we've had for actually being able to teach the more technical aspects when we want to. And I think to some regard, you know, it still is fun because there are some kids who learning things is the main thing they like about it more so than even playing. Right. But this method allows us to get every kid engaged, make sure that they're doing, but keep them on task. And then we switch other partner and then maybe they get some drilling time. But Here's another thing that I think sometimes we make a mistake is when we let kids drill, we assume that when you say you do it, your partner does it, they know what that's supposed to look like. And they know what being a good partner looks like. But again, we have to model it. So, you know, before we send them off, myself and, you know, Coach Brandon, we're going to do a rep. He's going to get me grips, step, kick, neon belly. Then he's, I'm going to stand up. He, then I'll do it. Grip, step, kick, neon belly, back and forth, back and forth. Who thinks they can do it just like that? Right. And I get all the kids engaged, all the kids to buy in that. Okay, cool. When we actually go drill in the formal classical way, this is how it's going to be. And yeah, it's just when we do teach in that way, it's awesome. You know, and it's very clear because they're not left to their own devices. They're always participating and the coach is always coaching. And I think that's like the big key that a lot of classrooms can be missing. I love that idea of effectively breaking up the drill into kind of a class-wide sequence, almost like where a drill sergeant barks out an order and everyone does one step and then the next order and then another. Because like you said, that gives 
the coach the ability to see right away if everyone in the room is on the same page, which they inevitably will not be, right? There's always going to be people who who lost the plot or maybe they need a bit of help. But also, like you said, it encourages the kids to stay engaged because the coach is always coaching. You contrast this with the way that a lot of classes work, where they basically say, okay, here's the steps that I want everyone to follow. You know, you got four minutes. One person drills for two minutes and then we're going to switch and the other person drills for two minutes. Well, if you do that, you're basically creating a situation where, first of all, the coach is not coaching anymore because they're basically stepping out and just letting the kids do everything on their own. But then also now you're creating a lot of work for the coach because the coach has to simultaneously keep eyes on all of these drilling pairs all throughout the room. Seems to me that your approach of breaking it down into single steps and then checking in with everyone is a much better way to keep people engaged the whole way through. Yeah. And right, like our number one thing that we sort of preach to our coaching team is like the main thing is that there has to be no downtime and you always have to be coaching, right? If the room is silent, you're not doing your core task, which is to coach, right? To engage them, keep them moving through the activities, stay on schedule, all that stuff. Most challenges that we encounter are when we stop coaching, when we allow there to be downtime, when we let them be idle without constant direction. And I know it sounds like we're like over coaching, but not really, you know, like these are stress-free days on the mat, you know, within reason. Of course, you know, you're exerting a lot of energy to engage, but when you sort of keep this constant momentum going, class flies by, you know, kids are like, wow, class is over, you know, and that's what you want. Same thing coaches like, oh, wow, we're already done all the skill building drills. And that's a, a super big part of this, you know, is you want to make sure that the class has a good pace and that the pace, you know, if it does drop, that it gets engaging really fast, you know, in a different way that, you know, brings their energy back up. And I think that's one thing that you need to be mindful of is like, you are the energy source for the room. If your class isn't focused enough, you're probably not giving out those high energy engagement vibes that you want from them, right? And that's another thing that I think is just really important to understand is that it all stems from whoever's at the head of the room. You know, you're you're the ener- energy source for that entire mat. Yeah. And this is where actually I think your program is especially interesting. I took a look at that checklist that you'd prepared for your coaches in terms of the things that you expect your coaches to be able to do when they're running a kid's program. And it was quite different from what I expected. You know, I I would think that most people, if they're employing a kid's coach, their concerns are probably, you know, okay, do you know (laughs) jujitsu? Did you have the patience and the attention span to deal with a room of 20 kids at the same time? Whereas your, your criteria were quite different. You were saying things like, hey, are you actively and aggressively trying to maintain eye contact with the kids in the room? Are you providing constant positive reinforcement? Are you able to command the attention of the room and model good behavior? Are you able to get call and response where you can keep the students engaged by getting them to chime in and share their own ideas? And these are things that I think are quite different from what many people would expect, you know, to look for in a coach. They generally think, hey, I just want someone who's good at jujitsu. But I think what you've kind of modeled here is that behavior, being a good role model and being engaging are really the most important thing at the end of the day. Well, I mean, if you think of your favorite childhood teachers, they were the ones that were super engaging that you were like, wow, they do, you know, they're they're superheroes in your eyes, you know, and they weren't superheroes because they knew the alphabet really good. They were superheroes because they made you feel seen in their class, that you were always a part of it, that they just had this energy about them. And for us, like our number one thing is like a good coach is not really a technician in the sense that, hey, what makes you valuable is your ability to break down this arm bar. A good coach is someone who can connect because unless I can connect with our students, I can't coach them. I can't challenge them, right? I can't push them to be any better if I miss that first base connection, right? And I think that's, you know, a thing we really miss too much. We think, oh, you know, they're here to learn jujitsu, but they won't learn jujitsu if they're not plugged in. And if that is what you make the forefront, like number one task, you have a whole room following your every step. You know, you have a whole room wanting to do well in class so they can have that great relationship with you. But I think too often we skip over connection or we treat connection as more of like a checklist item. Like, oh, I said hi to everyone today. Mission complete. You know, Mm -hmm. but it goes a lot further than that to actually make it 
you know, meaningful and, and run the room well. Yeah, yeah. Something that you have, have said before, you've talked about the importance of teaching life skills as well. And I think that's a fascinating thing too, how you don't just teach people jujitsu, but how you teach people how to be better off the mats. And I mean, I've said many times that I think one of the main reasons to learn jujitsu is because it gives you a skill set that you'll use outside of jujitsu. How do you structure that when you're providing education for kids? I mean, I guess intuitively as grapplers, we have an understanding of how to teach an arm bar, but how do you teach a kid to be self-confident or how do you teach a kid to be able to speak up when they don't know the, the answer to a question, right? That seems to me to be something that's pretty challenging, especially for a grown-up who's not used to working with kids to learn how to do properly. Yeah. So I'll tackle both parts of that. So the second thing, you know, just getting kids to engage, man, you just ask them questions and make them answer you. And that sounds really plain and simple. But the key is that you have to already have first fostered a positive learning environment where they know, hey, in this room, it's okay to say something and be wrong. Or in this room, it's okay to, sh you know, like, you need to first set that culture in the room so that kids can feel comfortable, you know, essentially taking risks by participating, you know. But when it comes to stuff like how do I teach self-esteem. And that's actually what our kids are learning right now at our academy. You know, they're learning that self-esteem is the joy of being myself. That's like the big theme. So how are we going to teach that? You know, of course, we're going to talk about it, get kids to engage in that. But we take it sort of a step further we, where we give them little challenges. So I'm actually looking at our little worksheet for the cycle right now. We have a little sheet where the kids are writing down three proud moments where they were proud of themselves, right? And that's just learning. Hey, you know, feel good about myself, I should think about all the good things I've done, you know, and then our next level is we have the kids writing down some things that they're grateful for, you know, and essentially, all we're doing is we're thinking if I want this child to actually have this skill or whatever, I have to force them to reflect and engage with that material, rather than just the mat chat, you know, for one second or whatever. And of course, this takes a little bit more planning and effort. But it's so worthwhile because I'll tell you, families love this and not because, you know, not because it's just like an added feature, but because it's truly a big value provider. You know, this is something that is not really happening at soccer, you know, or in school or in a lot of their other activities. So when they see that, hey, wow, these coaches are sort of using their time to actually make this level of impact. It's awesome. But yeah, to teach it, you just have to think, deconstruct it. Like if I want to teach you discipline, sure, we can talk about different stuff. But hey, what would be something I could have you engage with at home that would really bring that to light? Can it be cleaning your room? Can we do that three days in a row and you get some sort of special recognition or reward? Just stuff like that. And yeah, that, that's sort of like the main thing there is, you know, you just want to think about breaking it down because the kids would be happy to do all these things because they're connected to the coach. And again, that's why I think the connection of the coach to the students is so important because it allows you to do these sort of higher order, more valuable things with the kids beyond just here's an arm bar for Mount. Yeah, yeah. You know, what you're bringing up here and what's really shining through is that you put a lot of thought and effort into how you package and structure this kids program. And I think that that probably is quite contrary to how many gyms do this. You know, a lot of gym owners will complain and they'll say, why can't I get any kids to sign up in my class? But then if you go and you take a look at their class, it's basically run by some teenage blue belt that they're not even paying most of the time, right? <laughs> they're, maybe they're giving them a discount on the training if they'll teach the kids class. And this, this teacher is basically completely unprepared, doesn't know what to do. And so it just turns into babysitting. And what you're kind of illustrating here is that actually, if you want to run an effective kids program, you've got to put as much thought into structuring that as you would if you were structuring a like high level competition adults program. Yeah. And so it, it all comes down to sort of that preparation, you know, like if you don't invest that little bit of time, everything is a drain. And I don't mean that like to say negatively, but like if I don't plan a class, there's a huge cognitive strain on me the whole time because I'm thinking on the fly of what's next, what's next. Should I do this? Should I do that? You know, whatever. Like, but if you just, for example, the bare minimum, if you came into class with like an a line by line class plan of, hey, from four to 403, this is happening. And 403 to 407, this is happening. 
that frees up so much mental bandwidth that now you can just actually do what you want to do, which was coach, you know, and same thing. Like if you plan your classroom, where are the kids going to be during this activity? How do I want them sitting? What should they be doing while I'm doing this? And this is all stuff that I really started to lean on because in formal, like academic, you know, school teaching, these are like the core basic things of classroom management is you have to have a plan. You sort of have to have like a double plan where you're thinking of what you're doing, what a kid is doing, what are your assistants doing at this time, you know? But it's not sexy until you realize the big leverage you get on it and the amount of like stress it removes and the amount that it allows you to actually get these kids to do more jujitsu because your whole program is tight. And just like we're so down to watch hours of instructionals, but like, man, there's just a couple good teaching books that we should all read or, you know, a couple good child development books that we should all read so that you can really make a good product. And Sometimes I think that it becomes just like a secondary like afterthought in the sense that, hey, I just want to have an adult program and this kid's thing is just, again, just like a necessary evil to make that happen. But it can be way more than that with just a little bit of diligence and finding those, you know, core things that will bring me value. And then the great thing is actually is because you'll do these things to make like the challenging group easier, you know, the kids are often considered more challenging You'll see a lot of the things that are true and bring value and make that youth program run effectively are 100% applicable to your adult programming in the way you run a room and the way you deliver material and all that stuff, you know? And yeah, you got to invest a little bit of time, but that's that planning and preparation. I think the big thing is, is it frees you up to actually just be present, connect with those kids, coach those kids, you know, and, and run an effective classroom. Well, what's interesting, like you said, a lot of what you're suggesting is honestly just based on good coaching practice. And it sounds like a lot of it would be equally applicable to adults as well as kids. I'd love to know, is there a a dividing line somewhere? Is there a point where some practices only make sense for kids class or is pretty much everything just universally applicable to adults as well? I mean, a lot of it is universally applicable, right? In that hey, is going to have a class plan beneficial for kids and adult program? Of course, right? Is having some sort of games-based learning probably going to be good for youth and adults? Yes, of course, because it allows people to just play the sport, right? Like, I've yet to find anything that was, you know, not applicable. Maybe the life skills stuff, right? We don't do that with our adults, but that's not really what they're coming for. And that's just like a key distinction is, When you're running an adult program, you are one-to-one, meaning you are selling and servicing and fulfilling the person who signed up. When you're working with a youth program, you have two sort of clients. You have the parent and the child. So your program is sort of different in that regard because you have two people whose needs you're trying to fulfill. But everything else is universal, you know, like, hey, if I want to run a great adult class and I want to be able to give Steve hard feedback to make him better... I better have a great connection with Steve. You know, I better know the best way to manage this class time so that he can get some meaningful improvement or at least awareness out of this session. You know, I better know how to use my words the correct way to give him meaningful feedback that he can implement without just, you know, hurting his self-esteem or whatever or being discouraging. Like all of that is universal, you know, to both. It's That's like one thing I really realized is like, Everything is the same, you know, but the things that are truly valuable, they, you know, they're always true. You know, being effective at feedback, always true. Running a good, proficient game plan for the session, it's always true. It's always going to be valuable, whether it's kids, adults, it doesn't matter. It could be a piano lesson in class. If I were to think of the same things, I would be a sick piano coach. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I just think it's all the same stuff. It's just what we're teaching is different because of who our audience is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Something that's becoming very clear as we talk about here is that you've got a, a different level of expectation for your kids' coaches than probably most gyms. You know, like I said, at, at many gyms, if you go to the kids' program, you're going to find it's being taught by some teenage blue belt who probably isn't even being compensated for the work. And I, I get the impression here that you have higher standards for how you train and onboard and monitor your coaches for the kids' program, correct? 
Yeah. And I mean, the real reason for that is just think I'm literally having people come and entrust us with their most valuable asset possible, their child. Right. And for me to just like half asset would be awful because think of the amount of influence our coaches have, all that stuff. And it's actually interesting. I just hired another youth like part time coach this week. And one thing I told them is like, as soon as you're a coach, you now become a 24-7 role model. Your standard of how you have to carry yourself, it has to be higher, you know, and like all these things. So for us, I really want this to be like an actual job that you do because you're getting paid money. There's some sort of benefits that, you know, beyond just a little bit of, you know, trading time for tuition, it's not really a way to get an invested coach who's going to deliver the best, you know, but that happens a lot. Because it's the low-hanging fruit, easy way to have someone else do it. I don't want someone else doing it. I want someone doing it well, right? So we really try and build it out properly because if I can make sure that we're professional in the way that we onboard these coaches and set them up, that that's going to deliver the best product. But also for these coaches, man, if I were like 18 and I could be coaching jiu-jitsu like 20, 30 hours a week routinely and know that it's a stable source of income for me, I would be hyped. But that's not really a real opportunity for a lot of people just because of the way that they think of structuring and you know delivering these programs. Something that I've heard you say before is that you want to make sure that there's always a viable career path for your coaches. And I think you're touching on that here. Like you said, with a, a lot of gyms, they probably look at their kids program as a necessary evil, and they're probably eager to offload that to anyone who will take the job. But what winds up happening is, yeah, you're going to get a bunch of semi-volunteer young blue belts who are basically running your kids class. And they're, they're not doing it because it's a career for them. They're not doing it because they see growth potential. They're doing it because they're trying to shave off a few bucks from their tuition. <laughs> and maybe they had to deal with a coach where, you know, I run the kids classes and you let me train for free or for a reduced rate. And like you say, that's not a good way to get people to be invested in your vision and invested in the kids. You have to see a long-term growth trajectory for yourself in order for a career to be viable. Otherwise, it's just basically like a summer job that someone's going to do for a while until something better comes along. But I love this idea of turning the kids program into a coaching career for people that they can build a life around, right? I mean, that that's good for the students. It's good for the coach. It's good for the owner. Yeah, like here's the thing too is if this person is passionate about jujitsu, whether it's with me or someone else down the future, you know, they're going to have to be a competent coach. They're going to have to be a person who can connect with people, who can do all these things well. And it doesn't benefit either of us if I don't train you on those valuable things, right? Because one, you're going to maybe not deliver a great program to these kids, but also if this is your interest. I should be providing you that training that you need. So if you do ever leave Kaboom, you have the skills that you need to actually be, you know, <laughs> to actually have a career in jiu-jitsu because being a competitor is a very, very narrow track to success. But being able to coach, being able to engage people, like those skills, even if you don't use it for jiu-jitsu, I have people who have left me as coaches but do other stuff. I'm like, man, you know, those instructor trainings we did, I use that all the time in my practice as an RMT now, you know, connecting with clients, doing all these other things. And I think we can sort of be like short-sighted and they're like, oh, do I really want to bother investing in you know, coaching these people on all these little things. I can just have them go run the class. And as long as the kids don't die, it's fine. But that's like <laughs> such a low standard. That's like the lowest standard possible. Like you, you got to really aim for more, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. As long as the kids don't die, everything is fine. <laughs> well, hey, here's something I'd love to know, right? I mean, you're talking about your numbers. You've got, I think you said 312 kids. Just a week or so ago, we spoke and you were at 300 at that point. So you're growing like crazy. I mean, most jujitsu gym owners that I know would break their grandma's ankle for the kind of numbers that you're seeing. But a lot of people will probably say, look, 300 sounds great, but that is so far away from where I am. I'd be happy with 10 at this point. The only kid in my class is my nephew and he's only there because we're related, right? So for people at the beginning of this process where they're trying to build out a kid's program, but they don't really have anything there. What do you suggest to those people who are at the beginning of this journey and they're, they're trying to modernize and expand that kids program to deliver the kind of value you talked about here? Yeah. So I think with like all elements of business, 
you know, you could, I could be like, oh, you know, you need to market or you need to sell better. But really, you just need to first focus on having a good product that you can deliver consistent results with. And that comes down to things like, okay, yes, there's the day-to-day of the lesson plans, but think bigger. What happens over the course of 8 to 12 weeks? You know, like, because there's a couple things that you need. One, you need to have some sort of structure, big picture. Hey, how does grading work for the kids? And then work backwards from there because that's your outcome. Right. So if you can think, hey, I know a kid gets a stripe every month. What do I do over that course of the month? What do the lesson plans look like? I really think if you just really focused on running an efficient floor, the word will spread because the kids are having fun. The parents are happy. Everyone's engaged. That's the the best place to start is too often people think, oh, my kid's program is lacking. I need to become a sales machine cool, you're just going to have a bunch of churn because your class is going to not run well. You know, it's going to be problematic. You're going to burn out your coaches because you're just throwing kids in. It really comes down to, again, like it sounds so boring, but like planning, being deliberate. Like what happens when a new kid joins? Do they just hop straight in? Do they only hop in at certain times? You know, what do they learn? When do they learn that thing again? You know, just sort of doing this higher level planning. And really, the fun thing is, is you only have to do it once, truthfully. You know, you have to do it once, run it for a little while, test it, implement it. But it's just a couple core things that you need to do. And really, like, just super boring things. But consistency at these little things is way better than having, like, one super fire kids class one day and then a bunch of, like, three out of tens in terms of how good the class was. It'd be way better to have a class with just a couple moving parts that you can consistently execute, that you can con- get consistent engagement from you know, other people and build on that rather than trying to be like, okay, I'm going to start a marketing campaign. I'm going to have a sick sales process. If your floor is broken, your program will never grow. It'll just keep churning over and over and over, right? So usually the first thing I say is just focus on the delivery. Have a class plan. Know what's happening in every minute of your class. Consider the kid when you're making that plan. Consider the parents when you're making that plan. You know, like just those core things that I think is like, hey, what's this class have to deliver? It has to have fun, right? They have to learn something and they have to work hard. If I can check, you know, those sort of three basic boxes, you know, sweat, smile, learn, victory, you know, and then just really focus on the, the basics. Sometimes you're like, oh, if class is going to be awesome, I need to do an obstacle course. We have to play sumo. Then we have to do this and that. It's like, cool, but that's going to be hard. Just choose a couple key parts and get really good at those key parts. Truthfully, nearly all of our classes are the same all the time. But that's like a winning recipe. Because check it out. People watch The Price is Right like all the time. And that show is nearly the exact same day in and day out. The only thing that's different are like the objects that they guess the price of. That's what your kids class should be like. Aim for like super simplicity. And that's what will help you actually get off the ground. Because the biggest challenge is coaches get bored way before the kids get bored, way before the parents get bored. And that's what stops you is you keep pivoting and trying some new stuff and trying some new stuff. Make one really deliberate good plan and sort of start there. And I think that's like the foundation of getting your program from four kids to 10 kids because a good program is what's going to retain the kids. And then you slowly build up that momentum month over month. And then all of a sudden, like you just have kids coming because now their friends know and all this other stuff sort of happens too. Yeah. I love that part about how coaches get bored well before the kids get bored. And I think that's just general good advice for most coaches. You know, anyone who's been training for any degree of time is going to experience that curse of knowledge problem where you forget what it was like to be a beginner. And as the coach, I know you always feel like you've got to come up with some new sexy thing to show people. So they stay interested. So you're always looking for new shiny objects and new techniques you can put in front of people. But look, I mean, you got to remember what it's like to be a first month white belt. And it's going to be even worse if you're a first month white belt, who's five years old, you know, there's no point in teaching people how to crab ride. If they don't even know what base means, right? you got to remember, cause you're right. A lot of the time with teachers, they'll show something and then they'll think, okay, I showed this. I can't show it again. I got to find something new. 
honestly, sometimes the best thing to do is repetition. You know, if you showed a technique before and you think it would be valuable to show it again, that's not a bad thing, right? Sometimes repeating yourself is very helpful. And actually, just on that point of repetition is that's something that a lot of kids' programs could benefit from. So for our kids, like in one sort of like testing cycle, meaning, you know, the course of a couple of weeks where they're working towards their next stripe or belt or whatever, a kid will see and work on the same technique I think six times. And for us, that's over the course of eight weeks. So they're going to have six different instances where they work on this one move. Man, it's really good to get good at a technique when you do it that many times, even if it's just little doses each time. But too often, like I see a lot where it's like, okay, this month we're doing all back stuff, attacks and escapes and maybe one throw. Next month we're doing all mount stuff. You know what? Let's like be way better to just repeat the same couple core things all the time and maybe varied a little bit, but like way more repetition is useful. And I'm not talking about like rote boring drilling, just touching on the same topics, you know, circling back. And it makes it way easier for a coach because now these kids are having success. They're building confidence and you won't get bored when you see them actually doing the moves for a coach. That should be what is engaging for you. It's not like how novel your explanation or class plan can be. You're like, measurement of good outcome is our kids doing the things while having fun and they're coming back the next time to do the same thing that's it that's a good kids program right and i think we skip over repetition because ah the kids are gonna be bored they already learned a double leg once like no way dude they actually just want to learn it a little bit more so they can actually do a double leg on someone because that would be so gratifying and fulfilling for them you know but we lose sight of that yeah yeah even as a black belt there's a ton of techniques that i technically know you know if you asked me to give a demo i could do that but against a sparring opponent i struggle to do it because i just haven't trained it enough it takes a lot of practice and a lot of repetition and a lot of variability to be able to execute techniques against a resisting opponent and i think the mistake that a lot of instructors make is they do the initial repetition and they show it for a class and then they kind of just end there but unfortunately that's not how learning really happens right i mean just by being able to do the drill for one class you're not going to get enough out of that to be able to develop the technique to the point where you can really actually use it in a live role yeah i mean and that's something i think that more and more people are realizing now and i think everyone sort of like knows that we wish we would do stuff more often but we always feel like ah, oh, there's so many things that i need to learn and it always comes down to sort of that like breadth of knowledge versus depth of knowledge you know if you ask if you got like 50 grapplers in a room and you ask them like hey quick name the top three guard passes you use i'm pretty sure you're gonna see like you know <laughs> Toriando, knee slice, half guard to mount. It's like some of the top three universally across the room. If you ask them the best sweeping positions or whatever it is, it's like there's a very small subset of all moves that we actually use frequently. Why not just cater a program around those so people can have fun being good at the thing, right? And that's another thing is like people take a long time to get good at jiu-jitsu because we're super distracted by a bunch of low-level things that aren't key right you always talk about the fundamentals but never want to like focus on the fundamentals and our kids program like circle back to that is is super fundamental but they know how to pass guard they know how to take the back they know how to submit and they know how to do them very well you know just but and they have a ton of fun because they can actually accomplish these things rather than showing them 12 different guard passes when i know they're only going to use like three to five in their daily life you know that's It's a big thing that I think holds a lot of programs in general back, whether it's youth or adults, is wanting to cover everything. Whereas I really think you just need to cover what they're going to use and what they need to have fun and actually play the game, right? Teach them the basic controls of the game, get them set, and then let them go. You know, then just let them play the game in class, which is like the other big part of our program. It's like we teach a few things and then we let you play the game a lot. Like in our class, probably. 70% of it is live training for kids. And for adults, it's even higher amount of class that is live training. You know, I want you to play the game because that's when you get good at the game. That's when you get engaged with the game. And that's when you keep coming back to get better at the game. Yeah, I've never understood why instructors think that two minutes of drilling time per person is going to be enough to learn a technique. It just isn't, right? And I think that if you can give people more time within that play zone to practice and experiment and try different things, I think that that helps a ton. 
Now, I got to ask you here, you know, 300 plus kids, that sounds like a lot of, of people to manage all in one go. And I'd love to know how you do that when you get past the point where all of your kids can fit in a single class. And now you've got, you know, armies of children that you have to organize and sort and control. How do things change then when your program scales up beyond just a few students and now you've got hundreds of these kids to deal with? Are there any scale considerations that you as the business owner need to worry about? Yeah, so a couple things. Like there's the like structural needs of your business in that hey, now you have to think of class scheduling. How do I effectively plan class schedules so that one I can accommodate all these students and I can still be acquiring new students, right? Then there's the the staff side of this, like okay, you know, as I scale up every 75 students, I probably need another coach here 5 days a week or something like that. And the amount of communication that scales up. So, you know, for a lot of people, you know, that's the biggest challenge is they can't really grow because they don't build the team that they need to actually maintain the big jump. You know, you'll hear sometimes from school owners like, ah, my program is just stuck at about X amount of kids or X amount of total members, but they haven't added more capacity to the business. You know, you haven't added another coach. Right. And because you don't have that coach, you're one coach, they're sort of burnt out. So some of those classes suck and you lose some of those students. Or you haven't added someone to just deal with the admin, the sales, the communication. And because of that, people feel unheard and they get grumpy and they leave. Like that's the the biggest thing is like whenever I talk to someone whose school isn't growing or they are unable to grow it, is usually because they haven't increased the overall like capacity of the business. And I, and it's not just number of classes. It's really the number of humans that you have working to fulfill on that. I sort of answered your thing in a roundabout way, but that's usually the key is like, it's people that drive your business and we're in a people business. So usually that's the key thing, you know, training your people better, getting the right people in the right positions, just like core business fundamentals, which are, Sadly, super overlooked. Now, one last question for you here. I want to talk about tantrums because this is one thing that any parent can understand. And this is an area where arguably adults are different from kids, right? If a, if an adult is having a bad day on the mats, at least adults are usually responsive to reason. <laughs> but as a parent and any parent will know, your kid will sometimes get into such a state where they are just completely impossible to reason with and they're just in a bad mood and that's that. And I'd love to know how you deal with that. You know, when you got that one kid on the mat who's maybe they're normal great but today is just their bad day <laughs> how do you how do you fix that or how do you work around that when the kid's just having it just an unrecoverable tantrum yeah so two things okay one is hopefully we've already because of all of our investment in super connection we can read that that coming you know that like prevention of course is always the best you know solution so hopefully you've built that connection that when the kid comes through the door, you can see and anticipate that because we try and make sure that before class starts, we connect with all the kids. We talk to them in the lineup because some kids will come in and they just finished being bullied all day at school or being told no, 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 no all day. Or they just woke up from a nap in the car. Like, so first thing is you got to like have that ability to have a transition period where you know before you try and throw them into some structured organized thing let's connect with this kid let's get them plugged into this environment so that's one half of this is being deliberate and knowing that you have to handle that transition from life to training right second thing is your class hopefully your class is moving and going in such a way that they're always engaging in something because usually i found those things happen when one there's a stop in the flow or two the way things are structured are inherently frustrating like sometimes we set up games and sparring and all these things and kids are just frustrated because they don't know how to win the game and then they're losing the game and they're like this sucks i don't even know why i'm losing or how to win right so sometimes like that's a big key thing to think of and again i'm talking about prevention but like Man, the lion's share of this is all done in prevention. But when it comes to that kid who's having their time, whatever it is, and this could be any sort of like non-desirable behavior. It could be a tantrum. It could be the kid who wants to spin, you know, the kid who just wants to starfish on the mat. 
And like, it's not like the best answer, but like, it's truly what we found work is like, I sort of have to just give you your space and ignore you. And that sounds like cold, but most times it's sort of what you need for a couple reasons. One is I need to give you your space because if you're spinning on the spot and you're not hurting someone else, it's up to me whether that's a distraction to the whole room or not as the coach. If I get overly fixated on you, now I'm ruining the whole class to try and fixate on this child who's having a tough time. But if while you're having a tough time, I'm just focused on Johnny and Rachel and all these other kids who are super engaged and on point, that's a way better move and decision for me as a coach. Like sometimes I just have to let you spin or I just have to let you sulk. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm ignoring you, right? I'll have an assistant coach or someone who can be in your space and sort of monitor, hey, which way am I going to be able to bring you back up? But honestly, like when that happens, it's sort of about ignoring them, not like in a negative way, you know, but it's just like what what you shine light on grows. And I don't want to like try and get, what am I going to do? Get logical with you right now when you're at this super emotional state and be like, no, no, we got to get back on track. Like that's not going to work. I sort of have to give you space. And I think too often is we feel like, ah, I got to quickly solve this and fix it. It's like, or just let it go, <laughs> you know, like let whatever they're going through process, give them the space. One of the best things we found actually, now that we're thinking like, <laughs> I'm going to actually give you a tangible solution is when a child is having a tough time like that, we usually give them options. So what I mean that is like, okay, Amy, so I can tell right now that you're, you know, you need a little bit of space or whatever. Would you rather go for a walk with me around the mat and sort of help me out or go get a drink of water and then come back when you're ready? If you can give a child a choice, that's the best way to deal with a situation more often than not. And both of those outcomes that I chose were favorable ones. Neither of them were stay here and be sad forever or be grumpy forever. So yeah, that, that's going to be like my actual actionable answer is we usually try and connect with the kid. Don't tell them to do anything that we want. We give them two choices of things. Which one would be better for you? And that usually works. But I hope that you can see the benefit of all the preventative, deliberate planning stuff to sort of catch this before it ever happens to that's good advice. And I love the bit about giving the child options. You know, I try to be empathetic as a father and I try to be understanding of the fact that when you're a young kid, it must be a frustrating experience because you don't really have control over many of the things in your life. And, you know, including your own emotions sometimes because you haven't developed that tool set yet. And I have found that with my daughter, when she's in a mood like that, you know, if you go and start barking orders or just tell her no, <laughs> that, that's likely not going to work. But if I sit down and I try to explain why we have to do certain things that she may or may not want to do, and I give her choices and I say, look here, you know, we could do A or we could do B. And like you said, they're, I want to choose two productive options, but I put it into her hands, then that empowers her a bit. And I, I think it, it makes her feel more like she's in control of the situation. And I mean, I know all kids are different, but at least with mine, it seems to make her mood improve. Yeah. And I mean, it's just like, it's like scientifically proven, you know, if you can get a kid to start making choices, they're involved and they're more likely to, you know, participate again and get back into the swing of things and just the key thing there is like sometimes people think this they rush to the choice like okay so like we can either do the class or you can sit out those are awful choices bro like that's not productive at all i want two things where there's no negative consequences there's just two actions because both my actions there are just resets and that's all we're trying to get is i don't need to move a mountain and get something productive done I just need to put in a reset, a buffer, a change, you know, like a, like a pattern interrupt with my two choices. It could be like, hey, do you just want to go switch to that spot or switch to this spot? Like sometimes it's like you want to sit like the smallest, silliest thing, but it's really just like a pattern interrupt. I'm not going to make like, okay, do you want to? Yeah. Sometimes people try that approach, but they make the two choices like work. The choices are not work. The choices are just pleasant distractions. Yeah. Yeah. Well, man, that's a, that's a good primer there for people who want to build a, the ultimate kids program. I would suggest that if people have more questions or if they want to learn more about your program, probably the best thing for them to do is get in touch with you. How do people do that? If they want to check out Kaboom or they want to contact you or follow you, where can we send them? 
Right. So if you want to check out what my school is doing, just follow Kaboom Kids BJJ on Instagram. And that's Kaboom, like the sound effect, K-A-B-O-M, and then Kids BJJ. You can sort of see what my school is like, what class is like, sort of the vibe, the culture, all that stuff. If you have questions for me myself, you can just DM me on Instagram. Or if you're part of BJJ Mental Models Premium, which you should be, I'm in the Discord there. You can reach out to me there. I'm happy to help you out. Um, On Instagram, it's just my first and last name, Kabir Bath. You can find me there. Yeah. And those are the the top two ways, right? I really, really can't overstate how beneficial it is to just like watch and see what's happening inside the school. So if you can see my Instagram, we'll get a little bit of insight. But if you have problems, you have questions, I'm more than happy to help. Just DM me at Kabir Bath on Instagram or hop in the Discord with BJJ Mental Models and I'm there too. So what I'd love to know, where did the name come from? Kaboom is such a cool name for a gym. How did you come up with that one? Yeah. So fun thing. It is a nickname that sort of came up for me in high school, but it was really powerful. So actually it was like grade eight and I guess some kid like wanted to make like a terrorist joke about me. So he was like, Hey, kaboom, why don't you go make a bomb? And I guess he was, you know, trying to be a dick obviously. And for whatever reason, I just had friends around me who obviously didn't like that. And then they just started calling me kaboom, like in a positive way. And for me, I thought that was super cool because like, oh, you just flip this negative into sort of like a positive, cool thing just because you thought it would be like powerful, you know? And so that's actually where the whole Kaboom thing came from is it started in grade eight with someone trying to put me down and make me feel bad about who I was for things that were beyond my control. You know what I mean? And I sort of saw like, ah, you can just turn any experience into a positive if you choose to. And then since then, man... Kaboom is in my nickname. It's actually very funny right now. Most students at my school don't know that it is my nickname in a lot of like facets of my life. It's only like my OG like jujitsu friends who even think of me as Kaboom. Whereas like my students, they have no idea until they hear this today that like I am Kaboom, you know, and that's where the whole Kaboom BJJ thing comes from. But yeah, so that's sort of the whole, whole story behind the Kaboom thing is it was just some guy trying to make some terrorist bomb joke to me and everyone decided to give him a big F you and make me cool with a cool nickname instead. So that is where Kaboom came from. I, I love that story. It's such an awesome example of like sticking it to these racist a-holes, but I just love that some grade eighth or made a terrible racist joke and accidentally created a jujitsu empire. <laughs> Yeah, what a perfect storm, right? That's the ideal scene. Turn the negatives into positives and kill them with success. Yeah, well, awesome. Thanks a lot, Kabir. And and like you said, if you're out there listening and you want more of this, I highly recommend everyone check out BJJ Mental Models Premium. You can go to bjjmentalmodels.com to check that out. Um, There's actually a lot of stuff on there beyond just the premium stuff. We've got a ton of uh, write-ups for all of the concepts we talk about here on the show, as well as easy access to things like our newsletter and all of the old archived episodes. We got over 200 at this point. So all of that's there on the free side. But if you want to check out the premium stuff, there's a big red button you can click on the website. Can't recommend it enough. We've got over 50 hours of detailed audio course style breakdowns that I think you'll probably really get value out of. Of course, on top of that, we got live coaching. So you can submit your, your footage. We use Technique to provide that service. We talked actually recently to the CEO of Technique on this podcast. So great way to get detailed video feedback from high-level black belts. And you can also yell at Kabir and myself on there. So I highly recommend everyone give it a go. There's a free trial, so please do check it out. BJJMentalModels.com is the place you go to do that. But Kabir, thanks a lot for coming by, man. I've been wanting to have you on for so long. Really appreciated this conversation. And I, I hope it helps people because like you said, there's there's so much to a kid's program beyond just a daycare service for people. If you do it right, you can make an incredible business and you can change lives, right? You can really put kids on the right track. So thanks for coming by and sharing all of this. I, I hope it inspires a lot of people to follow your lead. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. And like Steve said, if you have any questions, anything, feel free to reach out. I'm super happy to share. It just help you out too. Awesome. And thanks to everyone listening. Super appreciated as always. And we'll talk to you next week. See you soon.